I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Team Human is an ad-free community project. You can join supporters like Paul M., Thomas Sastad, Joke Metz Dog, Jaden Pye, and Connie by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You'll get all sorts of cool stuff, including access to my paywalled medium pieces and our Team Human Discord, where we're holding live sessions and kibitz room episodes. You won't get an NFT, but that's a good thing. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. You finally found the table at the high school cafeteria where everyone is welcome, no one gets ridiculed, and the tribes relinquish even their ceremonial weapons. Put down your tray, take a seat, and please enjoy a bite of my sandwich. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, a cultist, philosopher, podcast host, and the author of the novel Hawk Mountain, my friend, Connor Habib. Materialism is traumatic, and it's no surprise to me that the increase of the trauma model and what we consider as traumatizing has just gone up and up and up and up and up as we've deepened our commitment to materialism and changing material conditions as the one solution. Connor will be showing us how shared stories and identification with each other's trauma can help us find a new level of solidarity with one another. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Not sure if you all noticed, but gas prices are up. I saw a woman fill up her old station wagon with premium the other day, and the pump total went over $100. Ouch, I said to her. 
This damn inflation will be the end of us all, she replied. And then she added, let's go, Brandon. Meaning (laughs) Joe Biden should be blamed for this outrage. And she drove off. Of course, the reason why gas is so expensive may have less to do with Joe Biden or even the war in Ukraine and the oil industry itself. People stopped driving and flying during COVID, so oil producers reduced their exploration, their drilling, and their output. Now that people are active again, demand has returned, but supplies are going to take at least a few months to catch up. When demand outstrips supply, prices rise. But oil companies, they're also exploiting the crisis. They should be profiting less in an environment of limited supply. But by gouging prices, they've ended up having some of their most profitable years ever. The money's not going to the cost of the oil, but to shareholders of oil companies. See Naomi Klein's shock doctrine for how this kind of disaster capitalism works. This is a distorted, corrupted market with prices opportunistically orchestrated by corporations. We also happen to subsidize with about $20 billion of tax money annually. Much of the rest of the inflation we're experiencing results from similar dynamics. During COVID, many factories shut down. It didn't affect prices much because most people were buying less stuff anyway. Now that people are back in the stores, some of them, yes, with the unspent relief checks signed by both Trump and Biden, demand is outstripping the limited supply of goods, at least for the moment. And this will pass. But the longer term trend here, the one that may not pass so easily, is that people really don't want to go back to work as they once knew it. After spending the last couple of years on Zoom calls or doing customer service by phone from home for a retailer or saving up savings or taking care of loved ones, many former workers are reluctant to head back to the office, the big box store, the factory floor. It's inconvenient, a lot of work, and it's still a health risk. They may not have unions to fight their battles for them, but they want more money all the same. Yes, the reason why things are starting to cost more is that the people making them, digging up the resources for them and delivering them, they want to be paid a fair wage for their work. And now that China's having its own issues with lockdowns, their ready supply of low-cost labor to undermine American wages, that's been sidelined. We've gotten used to many products being cheaper than they should be. I may be giving away my age here, but back when I was a kid, people bought less stuff and kept it for much longer. My dad used to use the same transistor radio he bought when he went into the army until he died. I listen to Mets games on it to this day. It's not just that it was made better. It's that we didn't think to purchase anything we would dispose of a couple of years later. These were our beach chairs. This was our garden hose. This was our salad bowl. Things may have cost more relative to our earnings, but that didn't really matter because we purchased so many fewer things and we only did it once for each thing. This allowed workers to be paid more, which in turn encouraged them to remain longer at the same job, which in turn led to higher levels of competence, which in turn led to higher quality products that lasted longer. If we couldn't afford something, we saved for a few weeks or months until we could. We didn't resent the price because we understood that's what it costs to make the thing. 
So yes, we are all now experiencing sticker shock on a daily basis. Cars that were once cheap now cost as much as a base model BMW. This is the cost of hiring employees instead of gig workers and not being able to externalize the social, economic, and environmental hazards of enslaved labor to so-called developing nations. The stock market, and it hates inflation. People with lots of cash, they hate inflation. But people in debt, they tend to benefit because the dollars they have to pay back are getting easier for them to get than the ones that they borrowed. The true victims of inflation are the poor, the elderly, and others on fixed incomes. Prices are going up, but unlike workers with rising wages, their available spending money is the same. The fact that their food, water and other life essentials can be rendered out of reach by market forces, that's really a sad failure of our eroding safety net and a discussion for a different monologue. But luckily, those of us buying less stuff because it's so expensive, we're going to have more time to spend with the poor and working on their behalf. Fewer tickets to the game or movies means more barbecues at home to which to invite them. Fewer gallons of gas in the car means more of an incentive to meet the neighbors and assist those in need. Prices may be going up, but the cost of taking care of each other for real is going down every day. 
Richard Metzger. Paul Offley. Paul Richard, Offley. Mes- Richard Metzger. Mm-hmm. Howard Bloom. Oh my God. And I think that was it. I know. One. It was almost pre IDW in a certain yeah, right, way. Right, right, <laughs> oh right, exactly. But because it wasn't about, about gender, <laughs> it wasn't about gender or hate, but just, um, oh my God. <laughs> so, no particular order. First, let's, let's talk about your book. I was surprised that you wrote a novel because mm. I knew you, I mean, not as jack of all trades or anything like that, but now I'm kind of thinking, oh man, <laughs> um, there is a renaissance quality because I knew you as a, a a science philosophy thinker person, then as a movie star, to put it mildly, and then as a kind of spiritual, magical practitioner and advisor and then I see a novel, and I'm thinking, oh, man, it's going to be some new-agey thing, you know, some wonderful Buddhist exploration of our reality and the recursive loops of the fractal sensibility of our time. You know, the stuff you talk about. And then I read this, and I'm, I'm so thrown into my own upbringing. I mean, I don't want to tell the story of this book to people, but reflect on some of the the themes and things because this is a you know we're in a podcast in the moment, and then people hopefully what they'll see is oh these are things I care about I want to be inside this guy's fictional world as well, but I had this awful set of flashbacks to my own middle school and high school experiences, and just reading it I got over this trauma. I have have remembered for years being in the guidance counselor's office of my middle school. And for it's a weird, vague memory thing, being in there and then eventually confessing to her that there was this kid who was giving me a hard time. And her then, through the loudspeakers, calling the kid in and... And saying whatever to him, oh, don't you know, you're being mean to little Dougie Rushkoff. And for years, I felt so guilty. Why did I pick that kid? What did he ever do to me? And I had this totally separate other memory of when we had a substitute teacher in Spanish class. For some reason, this kid and like five other kids started shooting spitballs at me through their straws, spitball during the class. And Whenever the teacher would turn around, you know, I'd get like three more, bang, bang, bang on my neck. And then the teacher looks around. She's like, who's doing this? And the kids point to me. And I'm like, what? And then she says, well, I see all the spitballs around your desk. Pick them up. And I'm like, I didn't do this. And that kid, the bad, came over and grabbed me on the back of the neck, pushed like, like a physical disciplinarian, pushed my head down forcing me to pick these things up with the approval of a substitute teacher. I blocked that. So I've been walking around for 30, 40 years guilty that I pegged this kid when look at what this kid did. And it made me realize that to have an amnesiac neural lapse like that means my experiences in that building must have been so friggin' traumatic that I twisted it up. So, and reading about this kid and the experiences that he had growing up, I was, it, it put it together for me in a way that I realized, and I identify with you too, my God, my God, it's so, you know, and I know we weren't in war zones and whatever, but growing up in that environment, 
Yeah. Yeah. So just to take it from there, <laughs> I mean, I think that is something that comes up in Hawk Mountain a lot. So the, the it's it's a sort of a literary horror novel, but I'm trying to think about what the horror is in it. Obviously, there's some very uh, grotesque, intense things that happen later in the book, but a lot of the horror is just located in school because the, the book tells the story in two timelines. In two timelines, <laughs> at least at first, and then it sort of moves on to something else. Uh, these two boys in high school, Jack, who bullies relentlessly Todd, and then they bump into each other 15 years later. Todd has a six, almost seven-year-old son, and Jack says, can I stay for very complicated reasons? And for very complicated reasons, Todd says yes. And then Jack starts building a relationship with Todd's son, and it becomes more and more tense, and it spirals out from there. But the high school part, you know, it's really interesting to me, like, how many people... (laughs) have tried to locate, for me, even my own kinds of traumas in my life, where, where did they happen, right? Like, I've had an ab- abusive relationship, I had abuse when I was a kid, I'm gay, sex worker, like, whatever. But actually, like, when I talk to people about some of the worst times in my life, it was fucking school. Yeah. And though that was the thing that followed me and followed me and followed me. I grew up in, you know, small town Pennsylvania. And the... The funny thing about that that I noticed, and it was something I wanted to cover in the book, was like people will question anything that happens in school. Like, let's work through bullying. Let's work through uh, these kinds of identity questions and how they play out in schools. But no one questions like school itself. Like somehow we've confused school for education. And so then school becomes like a total, like a totally innocent and progressive project that we're all supposed to be on board with. But actually, you know, there are lots of people that can tell you it's not that. Like, I'm not necessarily comparing the experiences, but you can see overlap in uh, native re-education schools where people were just sort of taken from their mm-hmm. culture and re-educated. I mean, then this happened in lots of uh, other colonies as well around the world, and especially from the British Empire, going into Sri Lanka and, you know, other places like... But we can just sort of look at that and say, okay, in in school in general, is it okay that we take a child from their family? And the family can be bad enough, too. I'm not letting the family off the hook. But then put them in this structure every day for 12 years, almost every day for 12 years, and separate them from their families. And like that's how we, you know, sort of bring people into the world. And of course, you know, it's for at this point te- technocracy training, right? Um, but you know, before it could just be capitalism, or labor force, right. whatever. The Prussian educational model, which is supposed right. to be like the factory, and you have the bells and the teachers, totally. the factory foreman, and all that. And and you could say, okay, we're socializing them for the workforce of tomorrow, whatever. So there's that. And even if you justify it that way, almost like the the prison yard quality of the middle school cafeteria. What table am I going to go to? Totally. Right? Oh my yeah. God, it's, it's a terror. Isn't that why when you watch prison in movies and TV, it's actually, if you're the f- furthest thing from someone who would probably go to prison, you can still feel that fucking anxiety because you're like, oh, that's school. Right. You know, that's what that, that's and what that exactly. looks like. And it feels unfair, you know, as a privileged white 
kid going to school in, in Queens and Larchmont and what were considered good public schools. But the the terror for me is not the later violence. The terror for me is the feeling of this kid going to school the day after the bully came to the door and said, I'm going to beat the shit out of you after school. Right. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I know what that is. And to go through the day thinking, I could go to the nurse. I could say I'm sick. I'm going to... Because as if I, I know full well that whatever I can muster as a fight back is not going to be enough. I don't even know why I took that. Why didn't I be one of those kids who said, yeah, you're going to beat me up, but I'm going to get an eye. Whatever happens, I'm going to... Right. Take <laughs> one of your fucking <laughs> eyes, man. Right, right. I was, was not that kid. I was just like, no, yes. Okay, you will destroy me. You will destroy me. I will probably not get a single punch in. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that is that is a great question, actually. Like, why do we fall into certain responses to the kinds of violence and that threats that are directed at us? I mean, some of it probably has to do with the teachers, right? So, like, you had that teacher response and you were told to obey the teachers, right? I had a teacher kick me in school. Uh. I had another teacher tell me he's going to strangle me to death in front of everybody. Like, it was this is public school, right? And so, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not equating all schools. I think there are some systems of schooling that are better. And I think that some teachers are great. And yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. So it's not about that. No, it's the institution but you're kind the of institution. talking about. And that, that institution is never brought into question. So this is the way in which right. we always miss the, the question of powers and principalities. It's like when all the sort of me too at the office stuff was happening. No, like very few people, there was maybe like one or two like really good analyses of it that were like, why do we have offices? Like, of course right. these are pressure cookers for like these kinds of terrible interactions. And, you know, and that's not to take the responsibility off of a person, but it is to actually consider what we could really do about the issue and the problem. Right, we've got to denaturalize these these accepted you know, right. as if this is, well, those are given circumstances. No, they're not given circumstances. Right, totally. They were chosen by somebody at some moment in time. Yeah. So then, so then this character, Todd, like he's a teacher when he grows up and he's trying to figure out, you know, as the book starts, well, maybe I could teach different books than the books I was taught. Like it's that, like it's that sort of marginal amount of difference. Like, well, what if I taught uh, the house on Mango Street or yeah. if I taught, you know, it, but as his son is going to school, he's kind of held him back from going to school. So he's a little older right. than maybe he would have been. He's just like, it's going to start for him. And all I can do is mediate the harm. All I can do is mediate the harm. These environments, they, I mean, they can only create, I, I don't actually know what good they can create these kinds of environments, to be honest. Right. Like I, I can see that good things can happen in them. But is there anything that the structure does that's good for people? Because even the idea of, well, we'll chill with your kids while you go do your thing. Right. I mean, the whole history of school, the workday is like, you know, starts at seven. So now we got to get our kids to school at seven. Oh, no, now it starts like at it starts at eight. So actually, we got to get our kids to school at 630. And it starts like mirroring just the workforce and the needs of right. a certain kind of labor. And then the more stuff that we build around, okay, now the kids are going to be there that early. We're going to have right. to give them some food. Now we got to do a program and get them free milk. And it's yeah. like we keep building around the basic, uh, the original assumption. But the original assumption, I mean, it goes all the way back. Finally, it goes to capitalism. You know, it's how do we support 
right. working people. And how does it support our model of time, right? Which right. is deeply tied into capitalism. And and by the way, like we'll pay the teachers, you know, like to be CEOs again in prison. Like we're going to pay them shit, you know. And right. so of course they're going to be bitter and angry. And how the fuck are they going to deal with all the like the intensity and insanity of trying to love and keep track of a different set of 30 individuals rotating yep. through their vision oh, each crazy. day for years. I used to live up near um, the, the state prison at Kaksaki, but um, the majority of the prison guards I know who worked in that prison lived in trailers in the parking lot of the prison. So what is that? Do you, I mean, how much better is right, it? Right, exactly. It's like it's kind of like a, a like a, a bear looking into a zoo where there's a bear in a cage. You know what I right. mean? It's like the, you're right there. You see it. Well, it's much worse because it's like <laughs> the bear can roam free. But yeah, like there's a center of gravity that's sort of pulling them in and being like, look at this all day. Look at it. Look at it. Look at it. You don't get to leave its orbit. You know? Right. And every once in a while, though, I mean, it's to. to, to to be clear, and to, to the listeners, I'm sure there's many of them. Every in public school, you find a safe haven teacher. Sure, you know, yeah. and I had a number of them who not just protected me from bad, but inspired me and built me. I mean, this this one and everyone I talked to, you know, who remembers Senorita, Senorita Fuchs, you know, in high school, who taught us Spanish and dedicated her her friggin' life. She was never married. You know, boy, for nothing, she was there for us, and we knew it. I mean, you find those those oases of of you know they're there but what but I, but then you know that even with that and i definitely had a few teachers like that i wonder like yeah, but how much better would it have been if I didn't go to school and I was able oh. to seek out people that yeah. were actually encouraging of me, living out my own karma, deepening my individuation and my commitment to myself and the things that yeah. I cared about. And you mentioned that in the in the book too. You have him wonder why do we, you know, why do we spend these years jamming more information into someone than they're ever going to possibly be able to absorb? And a few years later, they've forgotten pretty much all of it. All of it. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I, I'm teaching this course on um, Ulysses and uh, for the Museum of Literature Ireland. I did it last year and I'm doing it this year. And there's just like the second episode of Ulysses, Stephen Dedalus is teaching the kids. And it's just very clear. Like one of the kids is like, you know, doesn't know his lessons at all. And Stephen is like, well, didn't, didn't you, weren't you taught by one of the other, you know, faculty here? And he's like, yeah, he made me copy it from off the board as I was doing it. You know, or he made me copy off the board what he was copying. And it was obviously like he didn't understand, he didn't care, but the teacher was just like, just copy what I'm copying. Just let's fucking get on with it. And it's the same. I mean, it's yeah. still the same. Memorize this thing. It'll stay in your memory long enough for my assessment. Exactly. Exactly. Year, you're not going to know it. I mean, my kid always says this. It's like, I don't remember last year's math. That was last year's <laughs> right, math. Totally. <laughs> you're doing this year's math. So what are they, what are they even, you know, what, what are they even uh, uh, learning? It's just, it's crazy. But the, 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 the other thing, I mean, the thing that dovetails with this sort of compartmentalization of, of our kids is the, the compartmentalization of our sexuality. Yeah. And I was thinking a lot about, again, you know, I, I recalled it by, by reading the experiences of your, of your characters. There's like the same way you sort of have to declare a major in college. It's like you have to declare a sexuality in high school as if being abused means one thing right, but right. then i'm thinking and i don't know if it's really true why are people having to pick sexualities at all what if i really didn't know and never chose 
You know, yeah. I mean, but, I, I, are they allowed to now? Uh, it feels like it feels like there's a bit that kids are allowed. I mean, still they're sort of trying to pick. I got to be this gender or that, and I've got to declare and then take these hormones or do that. But just to be free of a named sexuality would be like, oh, you know, now I'm I'm touching this and now I'm touching that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that that is it. It's a really interesting angle for the whole thing because one of the things that people keep asking me about the book is like how do you want us to understand these characters sexualities these two main characters sexualities and i'm like well (laughs) can we not see that actually this question is part of the intrusion that causes the problem right and i mean this isn't new information to a lot of people, but like the term homosexuality and the the identity of being gay and the identity of being straight is a concept from the 19th century. It's not even that old, you know. It's like these, and they were to they had a lot to do with like medical diagnoses and like legal rights and stuff like that. Actually, some of it came out of someone trying to give legal rights to people who were committing homosexual acts, but to sort of densify it into an identity, right? Mm. So that's relatively new. So <laughs> so we see right. that. I mean, I remember having like a girl that I said I was going to like, this girl, uh, Nicole, and I was just told everybody that I thought Nicole was hot, but it was just a complete ruse, you know what I mean? To be like, yeah, but he really likes Nikki, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. So that can't be. And uh, I mean, it was a defense. It was a total defense, but also a defense against myself and my mm. own desires. So I've had to say again and again to people, who have interviewed me about this book like look they have a complicated relationship and in some ways like don't we all have really complicated relationships to our own desires and repulsions and if we don't actually see that there's some connection between this obviously people whose desires are criminalized stigmatized regulated have a harder time with it in a, in a lot of ways but everybody has trouble with it and it can happen at any moment i mean it can happen when you're you know in your in your teens or it can happen when you're 60 and you wake up and you're like oh i'm into this now right. you know and, or you realize that there's been a bell that's beginning louder and louder and louder so i think that like it's really important to see that these relationships are extremely complicated and people are and i guess that's part of the thing that that i understand why people want to homeschool their kids i mean there's all the simple stupid reasons that we see on tv you know oh because i want them to learn creationism instead of evolution or whatever and that you know those are fine whatever that's what you want to do but the real reason is is to try to get closer to um, almost like a kibbutz or something where it's the community is raising the children and teaching them. And you could have a few dedicated people, but it's not this factory that these kids have to go totally. to. And, and what <laughs> the creationism versus like, I want to teach my kids creationism. It's like, is that really any different than teaching them the Richard Dawkins like version of evolution, which is just cost benefit analysis, which is again about the labor force and brainwashing people into thinking that that's at even though that's been roundly dismissed by scientists who actually fucking know what they're talking about so like oh well that's obviously wrong and that's in lockstep with capitalism i'd rather be in lockstep with christianity which is also uh, in a lot of ways in lockstep with capitalism yeah uh, my version like is it really is the outcome really going to be that different <laughs> for those two kids in right. that realm you right know? exactly if you're going to use a kind of a a, a purely survival of the fittest right. genetics as hayekian 
capitalism model <laughs> right, of right. you know of biology as an efficient marketplace. So it's like, dude, you're so you are so wrong. You know that was the thing. I got a big argument with uh, Dawkins. I was trying to defend of all people Naomi Wolf <laughs> against at a party against They're Richard Dawkins. Equal, actually, on the well, factual these days, level, it's yeah, different. Yeah. But but at the time, Naomi was just trying to argue that there's something more going on here mm. than uh, purely materialist science can explain. Yeah, and he's like. You're crazy. And uh, so I started to argue that, well, you know, the universe, you know, what if, what if it's groping towards something that we're leaning toward? We're trying to get better. We're trying to improve and become more ethical. And he goes, oh, yeah. so you're a moralist. You oh, know, that. as if that was this. Uh, 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 right, right. <laughs> and, and also as if like like that version of evolution isn't like the most metaphorical, like wishy-washy, no science fucking bullshit thing in the first place. Oh, well, it's genes. It's it, they, they, they want this and they want that. OK, well, can you describe that without talking about wants well, well those are just metaphors yeah but can yeah. you do it without saying right. that you know right or they use uh, they talk about emergence a lot oh, oh you yeah know, all <laughs> things. and then right. you know uh, life emerges from that and, and then, then a magic genie comes out that. of the ant emergence. colony yeah it's just emergence <laughs> totally. it's something that happens in complex systems they get yeah, so complex exactly. and it emerges to another level exactly it's like to another level you mean almost like transubstantiation <laughs> almost like christ like <laughs> rising right. from here to there no 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 <laughs> like, okay right. I mean, the alchemical gene yeah exactly and nothing against their mind Model, but it's like just accept that there's some uh, exactly. underlying assumptions here yeah. and we'll all be fine we yeah i remember along. there was a I, I, and i hope we didn't talk about this on previous episodes but like there was a thing about you know lynn margley's my mentor she was debating dawkins at uh, oxford and he was like why do you care so much about symbiosis and she said because it's there because it's observable <laughs> and you can see it and he just couldn't wrap his mind around it because his model was so complete that if there was actual physical phenomena that could be observed on a microscope it actually wasn't allowed to intrude and that's how they densified the idea of reality was for him that was obviously again like it's just a capitalist model like just you know showing up as an evolutionary system so yeah how did you how did you i'm interested in that your association with lynn margulis you were originally a student of hers yeah at, where was that like at umass, UMass. amherst yeah that's right yeah and what was she teaching officially uh, uh she was teaching Environmental evolution was the course that I first took with her, but she was teaching the organismic and evolutionary biology program, which was in the geosciences department, I think. And I just went up to her and I said, hey, um, I'm in the creative writing program. And she said, what does this have to do with environmental evolution? <laughs> and I said, I want to take your class. And she was like, oh, because she was very into poetry. And, and, and uh, you know, she lived on Emily Dickinson's prop property, essentially. And she had uh. all of Emily Dickinson's poems memorized. And she, you know, so we met she was very happy that a literature student went to take a course and then we just became, you know, like get really, really close. And yeah, just three years of that. And then what were you, and what were you working on with, I mean, what, what's, what's her main impact on you and your way of thinking? And <sighs> That's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, like, cause ultimately I don't, agree with a lot of what she said, which is weird, but I agree with the way she said it. Mm -hmm. So she had this really profound ability to lean in and look at bacteria and then pull back and look at the entire earth. So it was this complete as above, so below move that she was always capable of doing, zooming in, pulling out, zooming in. And, that, and because of that, it just helped me see, you know, micro, big picture. But it was really the gesture, I think, that mattered the most. And also, she just was not to be fucked with. Like, she knew 
knew her stuff. She came prepared. She, you know, and I, I think she was also, you know, really into philosophy and everything. And I think just the interdisciplinarity of it um, was really great. But she was also very warm. And so I think having that much knowledge, I mean, she's the smartest person I've ever met. I mean, that intelligent, but that warm is just a rare quality. And she also knew her limits. I, I, I went to, um, I went to Lindisfarne. Uh, with her once, um, which was this whole thing set up by uh, William Aaron Thompson, who recently passed away, and all these other intellectuals. Um, who else is part of that? Pierzia, the the Sufi mystic, and um, and Fran- uh, Francisco Varela, and you know that whole group yeah. of people. <laughs> you know Evan S. Thompson now. You know who's so, but. William Erwin Thompson gave this whole talk about angels and his experience of them. And I remember asking her afterwards, I was like, so Lynn, what do you think about that? And she said, ah, it's just not scientific enough for me. But what she meant wasn't, it's not real. She meant, I don't have time because if the angels come in, I actually can't do my work. Like (laughs) all I really care about is like the spirochete, you know, origin of the undulopodium. Like I can't get into whether or not the angels are real. It's too much now. It's too much. Now, ultimately in some ways you could say that was a failing, but in another way you can see how letting another thing in would actually blow it all apart. So she was kind of like a, a, like a, biological systems thinker. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she was really the systems thinker. She And she inspired, you know, every, from Fritjof Capra to Donna Haraway to everybody, you know. Right. And I guess what you're saying, which is true, is a lot of the systems thinkers that I see now, you know, when I look at uh, people who came out of Santa Fe Institute and are looking at, you know, uh, world design, um, they have a very cold, manipulative, mm. I'm going to move, yeah. if you're going to move up to the systems level, it's because you you see people as these tiny little cogs in the in right, right, right. Yeah, no, no. That's that's really well put. And I mean, I think that that's where a lot of tech like comes from is that the idea that you don't have to like zoom in at all, really, except to like say that you know your Google project has now achieved intelligence, which is like you know what I mean. It's like all. It's like well, we see the algorithm, we see how it's working, we can make things work with like these complex tech solutions and neural networks and all that kind of stuff. But th- then no ability to actually identify if something that you've worked on is conscious it's you know spoiler alert it's not but then when like you can't you can't actually get down and see what's happening on the ground because the system is all that matters and so i think that living systems like really like living systems that's much harder to take in much less including a spiritual realm to the living biological system that you're looking at i mean then that becomes really nearly impossible and there are only really a few people that have ever achieved that successfully you know so i mean usually i've used systems thinking sometimes to feel better about microcosmic day-to-day tragedy Mm. you know i can pull out and see the bigger system sure yeah but when i think about things like uh the kinds of stories in the book where the bully wins and i want to tell I want to tell kids and people, don't worry, it gets better. It gets better. But I pull out and I look at, you know, the two leading voices in the American conversation seem to be Donald Trump and Elon Musk. It's these two bullies. Yeah. It's two trollish bullies. Bullies win. Bullies become president. How do we tell our kids it gets better when it looks like the same schoolyard d- teasing and bullying and... Uh, and yeah. horror show is happening on the on the grandest scale. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much 
there there's so much there where like better is you know better is that myth of progress that Walter Benjamin and other people like you know reminded us of that actually better is not really a good goal because mm. it's not available to us better or, or like Houston Smith said you know the the comparative religion scholar he said something like all ideas of utopia I don't completely agree with him on this but he said all ideas of utopia are you know misguided because the earth is a testing ground for the human spirit and so as soon as you take the testing ground for the human spirit out then like you don't actually have what is you know reality anymore now i kind of disagree with him on the level of like maybe we could get to a place that looks like utopia to us now so we can have new and interesting problems you know but like these new and interesting problems that are facing us now like they, they fucking they suck anyway to get a little mm. bit more back to your question about it gets better and all of that we're kind of going about it the wrong way like we're trying to solve problems we're trying to solve problems that um, we're trying to, and we're identifying problems that aren't really the real problems. I, and we did talk about this either on my podcast or yours, because I was talking about something that, you know, Nora Bateson had said to you, which I, you know, obviously I really respect her and all that, but she said something that drives me a little wild, which is about, you know, we need to come up with new dynamic solutions to these problems or we're never going to, you know, solve them. Mm. And I just thought, well, as soon as you start coming up with something new and dynamic, what you thought was the problem actually is you see that it wasn't the problem anymore. Right. So what we could do is, you know, if we start talking about death, as a reality, we talk, start talking about how materialism, and I don't mean consumerism, I mean that matter is, is the true way of looking at things, is, is illusory. There's a spiritual world populated by spiritual beings that, you know, all that kind of stuff. If we start doing that, then the idea of what better is starts to sort of melt away because better is really just, we're talking about comfort, we're talking about material conditions, and all those things are important Definitely, and we definitely have to try to do that work immediately, but at the same time, we have to do the work of dissolving our commitment to that world. So let, let me say one more thing mm. about this, okay? Because when we're talking about trauma and the, that thing that's like resonating in you, and we're always trying to figure out ways to heal trauma or stop trauma from happening or whatever, but materialism is the source of all trauma. Materialism is traumatic. And it's no surprise to me that the increase of the trauma model and what we consider as traumatizing has just gone up and up and up and up and up as we've deepened our commitment to materialism and changing material conditions as the one solution. But actually, that's we're not going to get anywhere. We have to deepen our commitment to the spiritual reality of the, of the world to be able to deal with this and dissolve, you know, the entire field of what we consider to be traumatic. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's like funny. I was talking to, uh, 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 from the, the symposium. It's a new a psychedelic counterculture group. And, um, she was helping me see how kind of fascists use, nature metaphors and Marxists use historical ones, right? So fascists are looking at a fictional future and Marxists are looking at material conditions on the ground. And if I had to cast my lot, I'm going with material conditions people because at least they're thinking primarily about reducing the human suffering. You know, there's, there's, there are real things happening to real people you know so i can go to um uh, uh san francisco and see the homeless living on and i can go well you know if they're spiritually okay then they're okay not you know living in a in a half tent on the street but 
you know that, that it's so much that's easy for the tech billionaire to say going in, in their sure. Uber car to their estate. Yeah, but I think that that set is not pro- pro- <laughs> properly presented in the way you just said it. So like, yeah, if, I mean, I could easily just then come back and be like, yeah, well, Lenin was really committed to the material conditions as well. And that was like, you know, line them up and shoot them or ship them out on a boat if they're well, philosophers, right? Well, change was but bad. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but, but, but uh, him aside, right? Like, because Marxists can, you know, have their responses to that as well. I think that the set presented is not right. Like the set presented should be something that's almost more medicinal, which is I know I can't save everyone. I have to try to save everyone. Like actually having this kind of lemniscate inform it. It's so when someone comes into someone who's a real doctor, like that really knows what they're doing, they could see that that person is going to die, right? Mm. As an individual, I don't know if I'm going to be able to save them, but I have to act with the absolute conviction that I'm going to be able to save them. And so that brings the kind of, that's actually the kind of set that you want to work with because it contains the paradox of, I have a spiritual and moral responsibility here. And I also have to recognize that karma is true, that the law of law of karma is a real thing. So I'm going to proceed with the spiritual demand, with a spiritual task that's in front of me. See, that's a spiritual move. That's not, I'm just not trying to change all the material conditions. That's actually, I'm coming from a spiritual place to work on and affect the material reality. Does that make sense? Well, we do the best we can. Yeah. Well, that's one way of saying it, but that also has this kind of like resignation in it that I'm saying if you hold the two next to each other, it's not resignation anymore. It's a tension that kind of glows with a recognition rather than like, well, I helped that person out today. So that's, you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, it's not a plus or minus, but you know, you move. I mean, if you move into a state of compassion, which is hard, if you do though, then you are part of the metabolizing of all what's happening. Yeah, because that compassion means to suffer with, right? Yeah. That's a, so I I am in this with you. I actually co-suffer with you. But what does that really mean is another question. How do you actually truly co-suffer with someone rather than just offering sympathy or empathy, which are kind of just buzzwords? How do I actually recognize how we're connected in this suffering that you have is a completely different question, you know? Right. I mean, and to the, to, uh, when we grow up, I mean, and it's so sad, like in, in, in your book, when we grow up, you see the person suffering and the impulse is make sure everyone knows I'm not with him. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm going to be suffering too. Yeah. It's something that you, I mean, back at, in that disinfo era, that was the thing that you would always talk about was find the others. Right? right. So like the idea that we are all capable of being that. And so that's something I tried to do in my book a lot was just say, look, we're all fucking terrible to each other in high school and we've all had horrible things done to us. Rather than this being the sort of boilerplate for how we should condemn others, this actually should show us the total equality of like <laughs> atrocity and victimhood that we all share and that sort of push-pull that we should like, you know, so that no one is let off the hook and that no one is left unforgiven at the same time, you know? Right. Or un- unsympathized with. I mean, right. you know... I- I remember uh, Ramdas got interviewed by the New York Times and they asked, well, you know, what do you think of Trump? And he said, oh, I've got a picture of him on my altar, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like every day I, I, you know, I pray that he, you know, 
can, <laughs> I wonder what the karma was uh-huh. to lead for him to be like that. And it was like, dude, you know, but it, 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 to look at someone who's acting out and to go, oh, what, what happened to them? You know, mm-hmm, what, and mm-hmm. what are they going to need to do to process? Yeah. You know, yeah. And again, I know I'm, I'm going back in the trauma model, but something happened. <laughs> yeah. And, and also just to, yeah, and, and even more than like for me, what happened to them, but instead of like what you know, what's ahead of them? Like mm. how do they how do they keep living this life? Like they're gonna keep having these challenges and these decisions. And then of of course also they'll die and have to live a life between this one and the next. And how will they mediate that as a disembodied <laughs> spirit? Like and then they'll come in again. And so, you know, that kind of throws things for a loop a bit, you know? Um, and also that was a thing that someone who is a, this guy, Daniel Joseph, who's a student of Daskalos, who is one of the sort of big spiritual teachers of recent time. He would remind people, he'd be like, you murdered someone in your past life. You did the most atrocious thing possible that you could think of to other people. You've probably signed sheets of paper that murdered like a village of people, you know, and here you are again. You actually had to go through that to be here. Now, it's not to, again, let any of that off the hook, but rather to find the connection to the people that are doing it so you can actually really approach the problem instead mm. of delusionally like separating, detaching, and then condemning, you know? Right. That's hard though. <laughs> yeah not easy uh, do you do you have spiritual practice you sit i don't it's so funny someone asked me this the other day and i realize i kind of don't anymore i i pray but the world has become so in, intensely spiritualized for me at this point that like just walking through it i don't experience the kind of separation between spirit and material anymore that requires a certain kind of practice i probably could do better and all i mean by that is i know people who have like really intense spiritual capacities that would be really helpful in me doing what i need to do in the world that i could probably work on developing a bit more but at this stage in my life it's kind of like all right god what's the or whatever what's the task point me at it i'm gonna do it you know, yeah, and I go there too, but I feel I feel bad about it on every level. But that's just me. I mean, of course, <laughs> I was gonna say you feel bad probably about a yeah, lot about of things. most things. You felt most bad of about the, time. the high school incident for yeah. you know decades, for decades until I. But you helped me process it. Good. I somehow reversed the order of those two events that I thought I was the the perpetrator. You know, it was really it's really interesting what yeah. what our brains do. Yeah. Just it, it, it's so it's so fucked up. But but you know, I want to be able to sit. I really do, and I could if I made the time, but it's like, okay, four o'clock, I was going to sit, but there's 10 emails from people. This one wants, can I help them find a literary agent? Can I just read this one thing? Right. Can I do that? And I'm thinking, service is better than than practice, probably. And if I can just do, I mean, I think you're suggesting that that, that you can do this service and engagement in a mindful enough way that it becomes the practice. Yeah, I mean, it's an attenuation to spiritual reality right so like if you if you actually just kind of like right now we could just sort of take a second you and i could just take a second and stop pretending that we're only um these two forms holding these microphones having this conversation and maybe expand 
the uh, perception of consciousness to the space in the room that's around us and the tension that's in your hand and beneath your foot and understand where your hands are right now and uh, the feelings that are going on and the complete shift in feeling for me of from two minutes ago of sort of frantically trying to answer your question mm. into a kind of calm that allows me to alight my consciousness in space and time. Like if we just try to stay in that, which is mostly how I go through the day, mm -hmm. my boyfriend will tell you I'm full of shit right now. <laughs> <laughs> mostly how I go through the day. Like then you actually start to see things differently and see isn't even the right word. Like the world just comes through and into and exchanges with you very differently. And I don't just mean the miracle of mindfulness because a lot of ways, a lot of ways that's just another form of materialism, but actually, and it's what they teach in the fucking Marines to get people to kill other people, right? So, uh, but I mean, you actually start seeing things differently. I know. Whenever yeah. I do something like that, like even then, I feel like like all the trapped particles of psychedelics I took in college, <laughs> you know, somehow get released into my bloodstream. Yeah, yeah. And I know it's not that. What it is is like, oh no, there's another, there's a, a an awareness, you know? Yes. Yeah, awareness that's always running, right? But like has given us the grace of condensing into a certain point so you and I can do this other thing that we're doing right now, which is talking, you know? And if you could just sort of hold a little part of that in yourself at all times, like you're already sort of doing a more kind of spiritual day, sort of spiritual practice. And then it just becomes your consciousness over a certain amount right. of time as well. Right. And it's not necessarily, I mean, for me, it often turns into like a Greek chorus, uh -huh. you know, <laughs> commenting, uh -huh. don't go there, right. don't say right, right, right. <laughs> but, but see, that's, that's awesome too, because like what you can see is with that chorus or those thoughts, you can understand when you get into that space that um, the thoughts that are arising are the actions of other beings and that you're seeing them sort of rise up in you saying, pick me, pick me. I want to be the one you play out. Mm. I want to be the voice that you speak in, that you go with, that you attend to. But actually, is that you? Is that thought you? And, you know, and, and, and if you decide to alight on it, who are you as it sort of plays itself out through your actions and feelings and, and thinking and, so that chorus is like, you know, beings come to congregate in your mind and you get to pick which ones you want to hear. Well, right. It's like bringing things down from like quantum possibilities into the ones that happen. Yes. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. The but then once you do that, I mean, that's the whole trick with any action. Then you're kind of a little bit limited now. Okay. Now, how do you play forward? Right. From, <laughs> from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's hard. And, and part of that is that you work with your thinking itself so that it sort of moves around those beings rather than just thought, which is the product of thinking. You work with the actual active movement of thinking itself. It's not easy, though. No. And, and feeling and action also have their own versions of that. Yeah. And being, being a writer, which I never thought you as a writer. I knew you did creative writing back when. And now as a writer, um, which is a choice of one of those little people right, to right, bring yeah. down. But, but writer is a very convenient uh, career expression of awareness. You know, it's like a, you get basically, I mean, I've always thought the job of a writer is to have the coolest, weirdest experiences you can. And your only obligation is to write about them for others. You know, there's the head spaces. I mean, are you, I hate to call it like this or be limited, but are you continuing down this? Are you going to write more? Is this? Yeah. I mean, this is all I've, 
I mean, this is the one thing that I've really wanted to do most of my life. And so you're like, like 30-something now. No, I mean, I'm, for, I'm 45. You're 45. <laughs> and Almost, now yeah. And this is the first book book, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's happened. I mean, obviously, everyone who's read it has gone, oh, yeah, this is... Right. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah, you yeah, should yeah, fucking yeah. be doing this, yeah. buddy. <laughs> I mean, because it's not just a... You know, there's, there are these books you say even in it when, the, when he's thinking about books as a kid. He says, you know, they give us all these books when we're in high school of like... like People they think are like us or something, so we're going to relate to it. Like yeah. they make us all read Holden Caulfield as if, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, I go to New York City and hire prostitutes. Yeah, right. I really relate to that. Yeah. Um, I do, you know, just because he's like my age and color, I'm supposed to relate to that. Or Lord of the Flies. Yeah. It's like, really? You know, <laughs> but they always pick these, you know, uh, uh, things. And he's like wondering, why don't we just read about other people with other right. things? Right. But uh, I don't know where I was even going with that. But but you've been you've been thinking about about writing since. Yeah. And one of, I mean, one of the great stories, and this is like a little magical story is like, you know, so I started writing probably, I think I was like eight years old. My mom had an Apple IIc computer, right? And it's like funny to think of Apple before it became Apple, right? Apple IIc computer. I got a novel because I'd read these really big fantasy novels, like the 300 page, you know, whatever fantasy novels when I was a kid. And I got a Dungeons and Dragons one called Art. I think it was, I think it's this one. I keep saying this, but at the events I've been doing, but I need to check it yeah. because I'm not sure. Fact check yourself. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But it's Artifact of Evil. Artifactual. Yeah. <laughs> Artifact of Evil. And it, and it, the way it started was like in a battle scene. It was by Gary Gygax, the guy who created Dungeons and Dragons. And I was like, oh my gosh, you can start in the middle of the action. Because every book, you know, when you're a kid, it's like, Mrs. You know, Tam lives in a funny house on a funny lane with her cat, Doodles, you know. But this didn't set anything up. You were just in it. And I was like, fuck, I got to write. And I just started writing. So then after that, I started making these book covers for the writing I would do. Because I wanted to write a novel. And so I would draw the covers, and on the back I would write the blurbs from the authors. And one of my favorite, very favorite authors of all time, and continues to be, was Clive Barker, who wrote, um, you know, everybody knows the sort of Candyman movies, Hellraiser movies, that sort of stuff. I was obsessed with Clive Barker, so I would write fake blurbs, and he's blurbed this book. Yeah. <laughs> he's blurbed my novel now. And I don't, you know, I'm, he's one of the few people on that cover that I don't really know. So that was also... Not, not to say that the blurbs from the people I do know weren't great. I I did send out an email that was like, please, if you don't like the book, please do not blurb it. Like, I don't want anyone blurbing this book who doesn't like it because that kind of literary cronyism is really bad for literature. But he did, you know, so everybody who's contributed is very generous. But he did, like, I don't know him. And he blurbed it. You know, mm. and that was like mind blowing. So, you know, the, I guess the lesson is that the secret works. It just takes, you know, like, like decades <laughs> for it to come around. But, yeah. you know, yeah, it does. But then to get the confirmation from yeah the person who was there. I mean, for me, I'm so weird. For me, it was Michael Nesmith. Uh, oh, when really? I was like six <laughs> or seven years old. What did he, he blurb? He didn't blurb. He didn't blurb, uh, but he, he. He looked at me through the TV set when I was six years old in a way that communicated a whole lot about uh -huh. being trapped in uh, media and what uh. media was and all this. And I was like, oh, my God. And I wrote to him like in first or second grade. He looked at you, meaning he looked out the screen at yeah. you. I had that happen with me, too, with Alejandro Jodorowsky. But anyway, we can keep talking did. about it. Yeah. He looked at me. I felt, and, and I wrote this letter to him. And he never wrote back. I mean, it was, you know, first or second grade. And, uh, but then I finally met him. He reached out to me like, you know, four or five years wow. ago after wow. Team Human. And I spoke to him i said oh i wrote you a letter and i was like finally it's like 60 years 50 Amazing. years later Amazing. and let me tell you what i experienced and he's like oh yeah dog that 
that's that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, <laughs> you, you were right. Um, but just that was just like it sort of came full circle for me that it was like to, to get to meet, you know, just the, the experience of meeting the totally. person and getting the totally. confirmation is like, wow, OK, I I have been on this journey for a long time, you know? Yeah. Seeing, I mean, seeing those kinds of like rivers of threads, you know, that you're, that you sort of skate along or like go through those kinds of veins. I mean, there, I can't tell you how many people that I just wanted to meet and be around. And now they're friends of mine, mm. you know, that they become like, you know, not everybody, not everyone. Sometimes and I, I just hope that in those instances I've been spared, you know what I mean? That's some of the people that sometimes you meet your heroes and yeah, you really right. wish you hadn't. Right. Yeah. But some people I've had dreams about like many, many times, like because I admired them, I would have these dreams, literally like dreams at night. And then they would just become my friends in later life, mm. you know, like zero, the, what is it? Club zero G, right? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> and I also think that like, it is a way that something alights upon you that's like you're going you're going the right way. Like keep going because it's not the secret necessarily. It's just that you're being, you know, attended to that these things are showing and happening and 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 you know, alighting for you. So I think that that's I think it's good news, you know. Do you do you see yourself I mean, I know you're you're going to continue now, thank God, with writing. I mean, and just the 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 way you describe the change of season, mm. recognition of the the it's just there's so much reality in what you do. Like you don't Thank hear you. these insects anymore, or you do hear mm. these ones, so you know where you are. It's like that that you forget how many people right now not knowing about the words they're writing about. Mm, mm, you know, and you mm. I kind of forget that until I read someone like you who like, oh no, this is planted in a world that I actually can describe to you right. from the inside out. Yeah. It's so relieving, but I'm I'm wondering where you're. Do you see where where you're going now, or do you have a sense of of purpose? Is there like a, a, mm. a I know you don't want to make the change society, but is there? Do you see your your writing work having a, a purpose or goal? Yeah, it's so. Uh, this has been something I've really been mulling over. I'm so glad you asked me this because I've been thinking about it, but no one's really given me the opportunity to or the or the demand to articulate it yet. <laughs> the opportunity to demand. Um, I because I've been thinking like, what does this novel do? You know? Well, I mean, of course, I just want people to read it and like yeah. it and enjoy it or be sort of punished by it or whatever it yeah, is that the they want. The formal right? cause of any novel yeah. is the reader. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah. So I have, you know, at once I've been thinking about that, but I've also been thinking, you know, what is it to be in a room talking about literature? Because this is going to happen more and more. It's happening now. I'm on tour, right? So I know that a big part of it is the cultural realm has been completely appropriated, seized, and denigrated by the economic and political realms. It's been just leveled in mm. so many ways to the point where when you talk about a novel is to talk about its political qualities. And I've been thinking about this so much. Like, what People do all these political analyses, or of course they do economic analyses of novels, you know, and how, how they function in the world as some form of capital. And I've just been thinking like, the ability to be in a space where I can strengthen reading stories for what they offer outside of that. And what does that mean to me has been, I've, that's really been playing on my mind so much. How can I strengthen the cultural sphere by rescuing 
it's an, it from its entanglements in politics and economics. I don't. Mm. We can bring politics to bear. Of course, there are political things in this book. And anyone who wants to read this book and learn about queer identity or masculinity or any of those kinds of things, fucking great. That's fine. And I want people to be able to do that. But see, it, I want them to be able to do that as individuals, not because there is a political, like, exploitative, like, kind of sucking on the novel that demands everybody read it that way. I think there's no such thing as political art. I think that's such a bullshit thing to say. Politics comes out of the cultural realm. There might be art that, you know, expresses some sort of political view organically, but to say that all art is political, or worse, that everything we do is political, I think only can make us subjects to the political realm and in, and eventually to the state, you know, and then also to say it's all capitalism, everything's tied to capitalism, makes us subjects of the economy. But what about culture, which is individual, which is about our emotive feeling, karmic, living responses to things? That needs to be strengthened and because for so long, political engagement or economic engagement has ruled everything. So I want to just give back to that. So that's that's the position as a writer that I am trying to take more and more. And you don't have to get out of the zoo to do that. You could do that in the zoo or out of the zoo, right? I yeah, mean, just, there's just no fucking zoo. Well, like if we're circumscribed, me, but right. if we're circumscribed <laughs> by capitalism or yeah. living in a political economy, yeah. you can still... Yeah. Do this. You yeah. create a sacred circle within it. I don't think it, I think it's just in us. I don't think we're in it. I think that that is a huge lie mm. that we need to start addressing. That actually, it's the exact thing that gets us off the hook about doing anything about anything. Like the directive of us being able to act as individuals through cultural, philosophical, artistic, sexual, scientific impulse. You know, that's not secondary to politics and economy. And, you know, culture is the realm of the individual. Politics is the realm of how to deal with two or more people interacting. And economics is all of us. But it starts with the imagination. It starts with our engagement with ourselves, each other, with ourselves in the spiritual world. Right. And so I think that this idea that we're doing it within, there's no escape from capitalism, everything's political, all that. All that does is strengthen those structures. But they draw lines around us, right? So, And we can say, okay, so just because they drew a line doesn't mean I'm inside their box. They drew a fucking line. Right, right, exactly. exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a great way to say it, right? And we can see their drawings. Yeah. We can see their... And the guns and and police personnel they've put to guard their drawings and to enforce the sanctity of the drawings. Yes, and this is why... Ultimately, we need a non-materialistic analysis of the situation because you can only see that they're lines if you're not a materialist. <laughs> you can't actually see that they're not lines if you're committed to them right. being, you know, like three-dimensional objects just like you. And all you are really is a three-dimensional object. Or even like the, the, the insistence of using the word bodies in political like theory and language, like these bodies. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm not a body. I'm not actually a blood bag. You know, I'm not a body. And, and even saying that that's a concept. That's a, that's a philosophy. So I don't know what you're talking about. Right. You know, but even saying that could get you canceled in some circles. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, I mean that thankfully seems like it's on its way out right. of it. You know, thank God. And I think, I think John Ronson's like latest series on all of that was really 
really great. Like he was just sort of, I'm just trace back some of these culture wars to where they actually come from. And I, I don't think he nailed it with every single one, but I think he did a pretty good job on that, you know, showing where they came from. And as soon as you historicize it, you're like, oh, well, this is pretty new. And then there's that other one that's also pretty new. And maybe there are ones before that, you know, flared up and disappeared. And so, yeah. So, I mean, I think some of, I think some of that cancellation stuff is now, feeling historical so it's not it just doesn't carry as much of its yeah you know sort of power anymore thank god because we can't endure that you know we can endure that i mean all it is is just xing out our own eyes you know yeah and that's where you know and and to conclude really that's where i see the influence of of haraway and margulies and these folks on you and all of us which is you know to to you know you kind of surrender to the swirl, which is so much bigger than yeah. the names on things, you know? It's yeah. like, yeah, the name was useful or this or that or what, but it's like, wait a minute. It's a, uh, you know what I mean? We're just yeah. here with the jellyfish and the, <laughs> you know? It's <laughs> right. like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that is it. Like, even if you are a complete materialist, I don't recommend it, but if you want to be like, just fucking pull back. I think actually this is why, and I'm sorry, I decided to take it here right before the end, but I think this is why, you know, climate change narratives, and I'm not disagreeing with them, I'm, but I am going to question the way that we handle the narrative culturally. The climate change narratives have been so difficult for us to contend with because when we try to pull back, we hit the limit of, yeah, but we're even killing the planet. Right. So like if you're a materialist, you're fucked because what you used to be able to do is think, well, sure, things are bad here. They're bad there. But you know what? There are dolphins swimming in the ocean somewhere. Uh -huh. There's like an elephant, you know, walking across the plane and there's the ionosphere and there's uh -huh. this. But now you hit that limit. You're like, fuck, the planet's going to die. So it ends up being this Lars von Trier nightmare of like there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. But I can tell you as someone who's been dealing with chronic depression most of his life until it for various mysterious reasons went away that like when you're depressed, you have nowhere to go. The world is completely within you. It's hell. It's fucking terrible. There's nothing to do. There's no escape. And like you, you, you keep, you keep going because you don't just identify with the depression and that's the only thing that gets you through. So this is just to say that whenever you think that there's no escape, like you've actually looked at the framework wrong because you're never trapped. You're never stuck. And I even forget right. why the fuck I was bringing well, this up. But it just always goes to the, I mean, it goes to the meta, but it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's, who's thinking that there's no escape? Right. He happens to be free. Right, 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 exactly. <laughs> That's it. That's it. And who's thinking that he has a body? Well, that happens to be thinking. And who's, right. you know, I mean, not anything like that. It's like, it should properly throw you into the non-material world so you can apprehend what's actually happening. And everything you talk about on your show constantly is the, the encroaching idea that all we are are, are, quant are quantities and, and measuring and algorithms and computers and technical solutions to human problems and all that that's material right and that's anti that is anti literally anti-human right so whenever we think we're going there for our problems or our solutions or whatever just be just beware take a know? breath <laughs> write a book <laughs> right. write a novel okay right 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 yeah what a yeah. weird place to go at the end. I'm sorry to, no, to take it. No, it's a great everything. place. Yeah. I mean, that's where Team Human was started for. Was, yeah. you know, the folks who were, were had an essentially, I mean, 
anti-human techno-fascist yeah. uh, uh, perspective on on life, you know. And there's there's you know there's more going on here than meets <laughs> meets the eye. Yeah, and maybe I'll just say one last thing to you, Doug, before we finish, which is, you know, your books that praise the internet. You know, and all that kind of stuff. Your early work, which you often say, we thought this and we thought this yeah, and we thought or this. Yeah, praise the cyberpunk kids who wanted to do something cool with the internet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, don't worry. Like, the things that made all that bad, like, you weren't firing the spitballs. Do you know what right. I mean? <laughs> like, let yourself off the hook for right. having that, like, optimistic view. You're still doing the right thing, you know? And just the residue of the people that, like, uh, like the mm. fucking detritus, you know, yeah. that's around you, that's not from you, you know? That's you right. trying to describe and explain <laughs> the situation. Be like, let's do better than this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I thought you shot the spitball. I know, the spitballs are all around me. <laughs> <laughs> there must be a reason. Yeah. My God, that teacher was so dumb. It's no, really nah. dumb to think that the one who got the spitballs around him must be the bad one. Like as if you're just firing them at the floor. <laughs> Man, I love you, Connor. I love you too, Doug. I really do. I know. I, do. I feel okay. it. Okay. I feel it. And I love you too, man. I mean, it's just, this is a connection that we've just kept up and for decades now and it's just it's always gratifying. And Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. And that's not enough, but but it said it, it, it how have to be that'll do yeah (laughs) (laughs) and thank you for being on team human team human is produced by joshua chaplin and edited by luke robert mason you can find out more about connor habib by going to teamhuman.fm and checking out all of the great links or check out his podcast against everyone with connor habib his new book hawk mountain is available from ww norton i'm douglas rushkoff and you've been on team human our last best hope for peeps Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer budget-friendly flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment the plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals so for whatever tomorrow brings united healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you learn more at uh1.com
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 